Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today, my guest is Sherry Candler. She is a digital marketing strategist, primarily working in the independent film industry. Uh, Sherry has a blog at sherrycandler.com. She is also the director of digital marketing strategy over at uh, filmcollaborative.com. She has co-authored the book, Selling Your Film Without Selling Your Soul. And she has a new book out right now called Selling Your Film Outside the U.S., which is in conjunction with the Film Collaborative and is primarily focused on European independent filmmakers, but the book can be applied to filmmakers all over the world. I first learned about Sherry when I was um, listening to the Film Courage podcast, and uh, and Sherry has an active Facebook group and a active Google Plus community, which is where I spend a lot of my time engaging in that community, and that's how I've been able to build up a relationship with uh, Sherry to ask her to come on to my podcast. Um, Sherry studied film and has always been passionate about the film business, but she knew that her strengths lie in marketing. She's been a strong advocate for independent filmmakers to basically get their crap together and to focus and get a very uh, sound business and marketing plan uh, put together before they even ever make their film. And, um, you know, she wants filmmakers to be successful. And in doing so, Sherry has always been straightforward. There's no candy coating in her message. And, um, you know, she wants you to be smart about the production of your film. And if you're going to sell it to the market, you know, put together a team that can address all aspects of that business. Before we get started, I want to try something new. If any filmmaker leaves a five-star rating and review for the Film Trooper podcast on iTunes, I will give you and your film project a shout-out on the upcoming episodes. So your rating and review helps Film Trooper, and in exchange, I can help your project out as well. Without further ado, here is my interview with independent film digital marketer and strategist Sherry Candler here on the Film Trooper Podcast. So the reason I was asking for like what the, a day in the life like is for Sherry Candler is because um, Film Trooper is also here to try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. And there's this whole concept of like building an online business and mm -hmm. utilizing their films really almost like an advertisement for something else. So I'm actually curious, like how you were able to sort of build your following or build your, your business as a consultant um, and what you, what, what it takes on a daily basis to do what you need to do to, uh, pr you know, provide so much value to the independent film community. Cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm flabbergasted, like how much like you constantly put out like in your communities, like, Oh, Here's another thing. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. You know, it's like it's 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 really um, it's amazing to, to see how much you're aggregating and curating for the for the community. So I was just curious of how you're able to manage that on a daily basis. Well, part of the management of, of the curation has to do with setting up my um, my Google and Talkwalker alerts to come to my inbox so that I can see what's being posted every day or in the last few days that might be of interest to not just the filmmaker community, but it also, I also use these if I'm working on a film. Um, I put in all kinds of keywords and things that would be of interest to the audience 
of the film so that I can have um, a constant stream of fresh content to post because um, it's one of the biggest tasks of using social media is that you always have to come up with some kind of content. Either you have to create it yourself or you have to uh, curate it from some other site from people who've already created it. So, um, you know, one of the big things for me is, um, why create something new all the time when you can just use what other people are doing? Um, and also helps you to foster a relationship with those people. If they are, um, creating content that would be interesting to your audience, they're probably interested as well in what you're working on. Um, so going in and like leaving a comment and just telling them that you have posted this link to your Facebook or to your Twitter account or whatever, um, let's them know that you're out there, that you've read the what, whatever they've created, and they follow over to your account to see, well, what is this? What are you? What's going on with what you're doing? You know, and you can start to develop that relationship where maybe you can cross audiences in the future. Um, as I've you know spent a lot of time talking to people about relationship building, a lot of people like to use social media, as you know, um, just for promotion. They're always out there talking about themselves and their projects and everything's about them. And um, it's very difficult to make a relationship or a partnership with a company if you're doing that all the time, because they're not interested in what you're doing. They're interested in what they're doing. <laughs> um, and so to foster a relationship means that you have to have this dialogue go back and forth before you ever ask of anything for them, you know, for them to do for you. So, um, yeah, part of the going and posting things on different communities that I manage or that I've created helps in uh, building up that, that community and that relationship with different people. That's pretty, it's actually fascinating that you brought that up because it's, you know, even though you're focusing on the independent film community, but you said you have other films that you're um, working on that may have a completely different audience, but the, the same principles still hold true of engaging. Um, and, you know, I just got uh, Gary Vanderchuk's um, book, Jab, 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 Right Hook. Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't know it was in hardback, so I was like, oh, look at this book. So I, I can't wait to get through that. But it, he's very much the same thing of, like, you have to give so much into a community. So those are things I, I was curious to find out to to give to this uh, community of the film troopers so that they understand, like, whatever audience you pick, you're still going to have to apply the, the elbow grease in the same manner of engaging and, and being part of that community before you ever start promoting. So – let me ask you, when did you kind of have like an aha moment that you wanted to uh, do consulting or be part of the independent uh, sort of film, I guess, community to offer this, your, your services of your, ex, uh, your experience of, of working in the marketing divisions of um, uh, telecom, uh, you know, companies and so on. Um, when did you, when did you have that moment of like, okay, I'm going to start pushing this forward uh, and start making a go of it? Well, as opposed to probably what most business books would tell you where you sit down and you make up your business plan and you decide on your goals and this is what you're going to do and that's what you're going to do. I was kind of figuring it out as social media was developing. My original idea was I was coming off of, you know, being a stay at home mom and doing work with a local film festival and thinking that I would get back into the job market. And all I needed to do was sort of go out and have interviews and talk with, I particularly wanted to go back into working with film rather than equipment which is what I had been working with before. And I found that a lot of um, studios and uh, distributors and things like that 
um, were really looking for somebody who was actively, you know, doing this work and actively in had been marketing all along in film and the film um, realm. And that wasn't me. And I was thinking, well, you can either wait to be picked. This is very much from a, a Seth Godin point of view. You can either wait to be picked and try to convince them that they should hire you. Or you should just go out and start doing it. And then you would be undeniable. <laughs> so I started learning everything that I could about social networking in particular, because around this was around 2008. Social networking was really catching on with consumers, but businesses, for the most part, weren't really using it. And in fact, at that time, film distributors thought that it was a fad. It was something that only teenagers did, and it wasn't really of interest to them. They were still very much in that publicity and advertising only kind of mode, and they didn't understand much of anything about the Internet. Um, so I thought, you know, I need to spend a little more time with this because I think that this is something that's going to pay dividends in the future. Um, so my first inclinations to starting online was whatever I find out, I'm going to share it with other people. Whatever information, new information, tools, resources, everything that I can find, and usually it was from other industries. It wasn't the film industry that I was studying, but I will contextualize it for how a filmmaker could use it or how a studio or how a distributor could use it. And that would make me a resource and something that people would want to come and talk to and, and have consultation with, and you would have your own business. Um, and so that was, you know, one, one way for me to be able to use the principles of what I was going to be talking about by doing it myself. You know, I'm going to have to put this in practice. I can't just be out there spouting theories and talking about what other people are talking about. I actually have to do this work, too. So that's when I started doing the blog. I started, you know, uh, open my Facebook page when Facebook had made it available to have business pages, um, separating my personal profile from a business page um, and deciding what I would post on each one of those things. And that was kind of an early idea most people had personal pages and they were just posting everything about their work to their personal friends and I was saying this doesn't make sense because most of my personal friends don't care anything about film marketing <laughs> so <laughs> I need to divide that out um, and then deciding that a lot of my online um, tools that I would use Twitter LinkedIn all that kind of stuff was more for professional so just so thinking about what do I post there that people would find interesting and find me interesting enough to want to come and collaborate with rather than buy a bunch of ads, banner ads, click throughs, pop ups, all that kind of stuff that was still going on quite a lot in 2008 and having to pay a lot of money to do that, which I didn't have at the time. I will use it to pull people toward me rather than push a message out. Uh, and that's really what I've been doing ever since then. But it's also probably because of my personality that I'm not a big um, hard sales kind of person. I'm not a big push, push, push and get people to do what I want kind of person. I'm more, let me help you. Let me share something with you. I think you would be interested in this because, and that means I have to know why they would. Um, but that mentality has served me well in the social media realm because that's more what it's about rather than promote, promote, promote. And in fact, I get a really tough um, feeling about it when people ask me, how can I use social media to promote? And I'm like, no, you use advertising to promote. You're going to need money and you're going to need to buy a bunch of stuff all over the internet in order to promote. But if you want to draw an audience through these tools, you're going to have to think totally differently. And that's not promote. Yeah, definitely. And 
It's interesting. I think I first uh, heard about you when I was uh, catching Film Courage when they were part of the radio series before they started doing their video podcast, and they had you on. And I think, was it at that particular time, um, were you promoting the book that you guys, uh, the, with John Reese, that I'm trying to look up the book. I, I bought it. So Right. Selling your film without selling your soul. Yes. Um, I think I was on pre that. I think I, the first time I was on Film Courage was in 2010 because because of being one of the voices out there who was saying you shouldn't be using social media to promote um, yeah. and that um, that filmmakers need to be more aware of who they're making their films rather than make a film and then somebody else figures out what to do with it. Um, so they, you know, I think they had read my blog and heard me speaking somewhere else. And so um, David, you know, contacted to me and said, I want you to come on and talk with this other filmmaker who wants to make sort of a filmmaker collective where his belief was that all these filmmakers would get together and they would aggregate their audiences and all the marketing would be done through the filmmakers and their network. And he said, I think that you probably have an opposing view to that. And I said, yes. <laughs> and so that's the first um, that's the fir first podcast that I did with them. Um, and then the second one, I think I was on with Bob Mose from at the time he was with Topspin and now he's with Twitter uh, talking about how to sell directly to your fans. Um, and while Topspin helps you to set up an e-store and and sell your film, it still means that you have to do the work of marketing and figuring out who your audience is in the first place, which Topspin doesn't do. Um, so we were on together to talk about both sides of that coin. And then later, I think I was on to, to talk about the book uh, with John. On and, and also because we were releasing a documentary together and talking about how we were going about using the principles that we talked about in that book to get the film out into a wider public. The, yeah, perfect. So that's the idea, like you were mentioning, you were, you were putting in practice of, of curating, uh, putting good information out there for the community, but not asking anything in return, being part of these sort of uh, social discussions. And then, you know, a year or two year later, um, I don't. I don't think you ever really pushed your book either. You said, "Oh, we have a book out." You know, it's one of those like kind of things. Right. Like, well, because I I feel like you know we're not opening weekend. Like we none of this mentality is about pushing everybody to the theater, or pushing everybody to the bookstore on the first weekend. It's this is a long game. This is gonna. This book is available. It's going to be out there for as long as people want to read it. And so you know we did some early promotion and wrote articles and and talked you know to people like Film Courage um, at the time when it was coming out. But we always mention the book whenever any of us go to speak or whenever any of us write, you know, a blog post about something or we put it in our bios so that there's always the name of that book out there. And in fact, we are releasing the, the next edition of this book at the end of this month. And we've, you know, again, not we're not heavily promoting it. We're not heavily going out and, you know, having a big opening party and try to push everybody to go and buy the book. And in fact, the book is going to be free, so you don't have to buy it. Oh. Um, and, and we think that's probably another, you know, uh, loss of barrier to entry is that it doesn't cost you anything to download it. So um, and it will just it'll be out there and we will work on it, you know, a, a more in the future as we gather case studies and we take a look at different areas areas of the world. This time we're looking more at Europe and we're not looking at the United States. Last time we were very focused on what was happening in the United States because in 2011, when it was released, European filmmakers were just getting started with crowdfunding and using some digital distribution tools and things like that, but they weren't 
they weren't up to what American filmmakers were doing at that time. But now they have caught up. Now there are more people um, getting comfortable with these tools. And so we've been able to find more case studies and to talk about some of the distribution outlets that are now available and, and being used more by consumers in Europe than they were in 2011. Interesting. Yeah, I've noticed um, a small part of my audience is coming um, from, you know, Europe, and it's fascinating just to kind of hear their take on uh, their development of their independent film sort of uh, breakthroughs, you know, coming in like, hey, we don't we don't get that kind of stuff over here, or it, it's fascinating. Um, let me ask you your thoughts on crowdfunding as it is today and what your thoughts on what the future crowdfunding will be in terms of, well, is it oversaturation? Is it, um, has it got to a point, is it annoying to some people or um, it will get fine-tuned even better? I think that we've only just started scratching the surface of crowdfunding. When your parents can tell you what Kickstarter is and Kickstarter does, then you probably know that it's becoming more mainstream. And in fact, my mother was talking to me the other day about something that was, she thought it was on Kickstarter, but it's actually on Indiegogo, which she had never heard of, um, <laughs> uh, about raising money, you know, via donations. And um, I think that it's much more pronounced than it used to be. And it probably will only get that way more and more in the future. People who are annoyed by it are really just the, the you know, first movers, the people who uh, watch that space more than the average consumer. The average consumer on the street still doesn't know what crowdfunding is really and has never participated in a campaign, so they can't be burnt out on something they don't know anything about. Um, I do think that there's going to be a fundamental difference between donation crowdfunding and investment crowdfunding. Um, in my um, opinion, those two pr uh, mentalities don't mix. The, the motivator of a donate donor is totally different than the motivator of, of an investor. Uh, investors are in it for the money. You know, they want they invest in something with the idea that they're going to get their money back. And then some a donor does not have that expectation. So I think that um, it's going to be very difficult to do both at the same time, to have one set of people who are your donors and one set of people who are your crowd investors. Um, and so uh, I was happy to hear that Kickstarter is not interested in doing crowd investment. And I think that's a good tact for them because that's a totally different idea. You know, the, the people who are who are in it are doing it for the money and they they will only support projects that they think they're going to get money out of as opposed to the donor side, which is who use Kickstarter now, is that they want products just simply because they want them to exist. They don't look at it from how are we going to make a business out of this? How are we going to make money out of this? Is this something that's sustainable? They don't really, a donor themselves doesn't look at it that way. They look at it from a, this is really cool and I want to support it. Or it says something about me and what I believe in and I want to give money to it. Um, and that's not what an investor does at all. So uh, the future of crowdfunding, I think, will split between people who uh, believe that they're going to get their money back in investment and people who are just doing it because they want to, because it says something about them or because it's something that they want to support. Um, and the reason why I don't feel badly about um, people like Zach Braff and Spike Lee and Rob Thomas and these people going to, to donors and getting money um, is because – it's their fans. 
who are helping to support them. And these are projects that people go, why don't they just use their own money? Well, these are projects that nobody else wants to invest in because they can't see that they're going to make any money out of it. So if they do make money out of it, if they do have a release and they do make money out of it, then they can take that money and make their next project or get their next project off the ground and not have to be so dependent on investors who are constantly looking at numbers and saying, well, how am I going to make money out of this? How are you going to prove that there's going to be ROI here? Um, you you know, they're going to suffer the same fate as anybody else, that if they have a project that nobody believes in, that they are supposed to be producing and maybe starring in, but looks like crap, their donors are not going to support them and neither would an investor. So those projects will just die. They won't they won't exist. Um, but I think that uh, that people who do build up a fan base who are interested in this artist making work that I really enjoy based on what they've done before. Um, I want to give money and be part of that. Now the uh, artist has to be devoted to the idea that they have to keep that audience um, abreast of what's happening, make them be part of the production. And I think this is something that artists are having a real trouble with is that they like to take the money and then go off and do their thing and like disappear. And you can't do that when you have a fan base and you have people who've given you money to be involved in what you're creating. Um, they're not, you know, going to go to the set necessarily, or they're not necessarily going to vote on every single aspect of your script. You're going to have to navigate those waters with them, but they do want to be kept in informed. And I can't tell you, I've probably donated to about 50 different campaigns. And I can say only a handful of them have kept in touch with me or sent me any kind of updates. For the most part, they take the money and disappear. And it might be a year or two, and I might see something out that they're premiering the film now, but they haven't kept in touch. And I think that's a skill that they're going to have to either take into consideration or have somebody on their team do for them because it's very important not to um, piss off your donors. Yeah, it's actually interesting. It's I uh, read somewhere that your project um, has more value before it's even made because all this enthusiasm goes into it if you know during the crowdfunding process if you have a particular project that you have presented that seems to be like this could be great but then then we wait a year or whatever and the film comes out and we're uh, are the expectations of majority of that crowd that that helped out is um, less than satisfying. <laughs> so it's you know it can be, but it can be, it can be. But it's also you know if you had kept in touch with them all along and kept the enthusiasm higher, then maybe that wouldn't be what they experience. I, there haven't been any, there haven't been any crowdfunding. Maybe one or two that I that when when the project came out, I was disappointed that I had donated. Um, only, you know, really it wasn't because of the project. It was because of how you were treated as a donor. Um, but the rest of the time I just supported them because I wanted them to, to be creative, to make the thing that they wanted to make. I had, you know, no expectations one way or the other about how it was going to turn out. I liked the people I was investing in the people. And so I was satisfied with whatever, you know, had happened with the project. Let me ask you, uh, in terms of artists or the your independent author, your independent, you know, musician, independent, you know, filmmaker, and I mentioned I've read and listened to you talk about the need to brand yourself for like an entire career. It's like mm -hmm. your style of work, and I know it's difficult for sometimes for filmmakers because they'll be like, "Hey, I'm working on this like horror film, but my next film is going to be a comedy." You know, so like mm -hmm. we already split the genres uh, where they have to rebuild um, per se. 
you know, an audience for one product and then re, you know, build up a new audience for their next project. So how, do, how would you recommend an artist sort of keep the consistency or try to, you know, project their long-term career in this new world of creating sort of this consistent social brand? It would probably be better for them not to think in terms of genres. Um, it would be better to think of themselves as the brand themselves. How, how they tell a story, how they see the world, that's what you want to build your audience around. Why do they care about the way you tell a story? What is it that motivates you to tell the stories that you tell? So then you're not attracting the horror fans who wouldn't like your drama that you're going to make or your comedy that you're going to make. They're attracted to you and the way you tell a story. And that's how some of the bigger name directors really can make all kinds of different stories. The, the Ron Howards, the Steven Spielbergs, the, you know, all, all kinds of different um, directors have a brand of themselves. So they don't have to stay in a particular genre or a certain kind of story that they tell the way they tell it, the way they see the world, the, the way that they put their stamp on their work is what people are attracted to, not the story itself and not the genre itself. So that makes it a little more difficult because you kind of have to sit down and examine yourself. Why is it that you want to be a storyteller? Who are you as far as what you're interested in or the way that you um, put together a story, the way you construct it, the way you unfold it, the way what inspires you to want to write about or make the stories that you make. Those are self-examination questions that you have to sort of start out thinking instead of thinking just about the story. You have to think about what is it that's going to make this story different that I, the way that I'm telling it is going to be different than what everybody else has done before me. And that's the thing that you're building the audience around, not the story itself. It almost sounds like there's like a need for like a filmmaking life coach or a business coach. <laughs> well, or, or, you know, a branding coach. Uh, if you, if you see the story um, uh, that Morgan Spurlock did, the greatest story ever sold. Yes. There's a whole long section in the very beginning of it where he goes to all kinds of um, uh, research companies to find out who is the brand of Morgan Spurlock because that's what he's selling to these brand, you know, to these companies. When he wanted to get sponsorship from these companies, first they had to examine who is Morgan Spurlock. And this is the same kind of thing that all filmmakers really need to examine. You don't necessarily have to go to a research company to find it out. But, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of books and little personality tests and things like that that you can take that tell who are you? What drives you? Why would somebody be attracted to knowing about your work? And so if you know that question, if you know, you know he found out that he was sort of free spirited, but like to poke authority um, and somebody who uh, you know, could be very ironic or tongue in cheek. And so it kind of guided how he presented himself because these sponsors were really buying into Morgan Spurlock. They weren't buying into the documentary he was making about making a documentary about being branded, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was very meta, meta, meta. Um, but the you know very beginning of that, that film showed you the kind of examination that you have to do if you're building your own personal brand and how you will attract an audience who also identifies with that kind of personal brand. And that also guides you on how not to deviate from that. Like the stories that you tell are going to have to be infused with your voice. If your voice is authentic, it makes it 
really easy. If you're trying to construct something that's not really like you, it's going to be really hard. You know, you're going to have a lot, a, a long time where you're trying to uh, figure out this construction and get comfortable with it. It's better if it's really authentic, but first you have to identify it. What is it that makes you different than everybody else who's out there in the market? And what kind of people would be attracted to that? Because that guides you on where to find them and how to make the story that would be interesting for them to hear. Yeah, it's very interesting. Actually, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, you got to see the movie because it, it, it definitely hits home to what your point is. And, let me ask you your point of view then, because there's a lot of, as you know, because of production, uh, the production, film production is no longer a barrier because of the equipment is so inexpensive and so accessible to everyone. Um, and film distribution now, really, with the advent of all these direct digital distribution platforms out there is no longer a barrier, um, which leaves us with the new, the remaining barriers of branding, marketing, um, just being heard. What is your point of view in terms of all those so many different like backyard filmmakers that just have like the equipment in their backpack and they're just making stuff with their friends and they're beginning to find themselves as filmmakers um, and then or have gone to film school and whatnot because it, it almost feels like there's a large group of uh, filmmakers like that all over the world and then you have sort of the next level of filmmakers who have been working professionally in some capacity or another that are trying to put the next business plan in place, but unfortunately, a lot of them may have been putting um, their business model plan uh, based off old, old world thinking, and mm -hmm. then and then you say then there's only a very small percentage, like um, like a one percent that's actually doing it within in this in in that club. Because uh, I know in Hollywood, like if you if you're a producer that has produced something that has made some uh, some money with a uh, a real distribution company, then you're part of this very small elite club. Like there's not too many like working producers that are doing that type of thing. And so they, you kind of get to know the other producers <laughs> per se or other companies because it shows that you had delivered something in this, in their structure. And so with those sort of three, I said, subsets of filmmakers, um, a lot of them, I, even for myself, I try to reverse engineer what uh, the film buyers and distributors were asking for, at, like the American film market. So you get to hear like, well, what are you looking to buy? You know, and then then you try to creatively reverse engineer like, well, this is the genres or this is what they're looking for. And you try to back, you know, back it up that way. But then also for an artist, sometimes sometimes you don't have any rational explanation why you've got to make something. And so I think there's a. a a battle between the individual artists and trying to make it, you know, commerce. And I don't know what kind of advice you might have for the, like somebody just com really completely starting out to get to the mid level before they get to the, the elite level. Yeah. Uh, most of the time when you're first starting out, money should not be your goal because it's pretty much not going to happen. You know, you're going to have to reach several milestones in your in your development before you get to the money part. And the first part of it is one, learning your craft really well so that you're doing a good job. And I say this to a lot of filmmakers who've never made feature films before, that the first few are going to be practice films. 
you know, you shouldn't have high expectations that it's, you, could you, can you distribute it? Yes. There are tools that you can get it out into the world and try your hand at, um, and reaching a market and getting people to buy it. But for the most part, that's not going to happen in a very significant way. You know, you're going to be limited by, um, the type of film that you made. Like I said, a lot of them are practice. This is not the strongest craft. Um, there are, you know, audiences, no matter, you know, whether you think that they're into independent films or not, they measure everything by Hollywood. And that's, that means that they're measuring everything that's made by multi-million dollar budgets. They don't know how much the typical budget for a film is, but they do know what a big, you know, impressive film looks like. And so they hold that as the yardstick to every film that's made. And it's very tough if you're making your film for $500 to, re to reach their expectations of a $500 million film. Um, so you have to be, you know, very realistic about what is going to be possible at different levels of your filmmaking. Um, but also there is validity in, in having being chosen by some of your uh, peers and organizations that work within the film industry. And I made um, a post, I don't know, several months ago about knowing the trajectory of your film. And one of the paths to the next level is being accepted into some of these um, film labs and workshops, uh, especially by the, if you're working in independent film, um, by some of the bigger entities, organizations. One, because they're going to help you polish or work on your script or your production or whatever lab you get into. Yes, they're going to help you improve the, the story. But the second thing is that that gives you access to mentors who are, who are connected. So like what you were saying, once you're a producer and you have made um, a certain amount I wouldn't even say that it's based on money. It's really based on attention. Once you've reached a certain level of attention for your work, you the doors suddenly open and people who wouldn't talk to you before now do. A lot of these labs are that door. If they if the lab leaders and the people who are working there really believe that what you're making is worthy, then you get introduced to people that it would take you years, if ever, to be able to be introduced to. And those people can make things happen for you in a much faster way than if you're out there toiling all by yourself. I wrote this script myself. I shot this film myself. I edited this film myself. I haven't shown it to anyone. <laughs> um, that's not really the best that's the best method when you're first starting out, but that's not the way that you should be going forward. You should be trying to connect with some of these people who have higher connections. They have higher connections to financiers. They have higher connections to talent agents. They have higher connections within the festival circuit, and they have high connections within sales agents and distributors. And that's how the system works. And people don't all want to believe it, but I'm telling you, that's how it works. So if you really want to work up into the next level, you should try to make it into some of these these labs because that's where you're going to meet these people. And another incentive that those labs have to making you successful is it makes their lab look good, that there's a reason why their alumni move into higher positions or get more notoriety. And it's because of their lab is what they'd like everyone to think. Um, but uh, the a lot of these higher up people look for 
um, vetters, people who are out sort of separating the wheat from the chaff so that they don't have to do it. So they don't take all these unsolicited scripts coming in over the transom. So they don't take sizzle, sizzle reels and, and have to troll YouTube. They don't have to do that. They just go to Sundance uh, Screenwriters Lab. They go to the IFP Labs in New York. They go to the Film Independent in, in LA. And they say, who's looking good? Who should we take a look at? And that's what those labs functions are. One, to make you good, but two, to introduce new blood into the system. So if I were you and I was out there making, you know, little films with your friends in the backyard or whatever, you should start trying to make some really decent looking shorts, get those shorts into pretty significant festivals and submit that short and your next project to some of these labs and trying to get picked up there because that's how the system starts. Now, if you're really, really entrepreneurial and you just want to forego all of that, you can try to do that on your own. You can try building up an audience yourself. Freddie Wong, people like that have been doing that with YouTube, um, but they eventually found that they became part of the system um, from, from building up that. So they didn't go to any labs, but they did you know, prove that there was an audience for their work. They worked at it night and day for six or seven years. Um, and when they finally built up something that was undeniable because there was so much attention being given to them, suddenly they got, you know, came calling from uh, Lionsgate and all these other companies who took notice of them. That's a little bit of the longer path and it's going to be a very long game. And for some people it never happens. Um, but a shorter path to the success that you're talking about is to go up through some of the lab programs. Yeah, definitely. Great. You know, great advice as always. Let me ask you what your opinions are about film product in general, being that it takes so much effort to sometimes just create the one product and it's finite per se. I think that, you know, I think Ted Hope was mentioning that we now as an audience globally have access to, you know, all film products from, you know, from all of history, you know, at our yes. fingertips. So we're not just competing with what's coming out this weekend or this year. It's we're competing with everything that's ever been made. So let me, what is your opinion about the film product itself and the um, sort of the, I don't know, the business model of sustainability for an artist in that respect? Well, I think he, he may have said, or some other people have also said that there's an awful lot of being a product being made for no one. So while there's seas of all kinds, and not just film, I mean, there's, there's videos online, there's video games, there's books, there's blogs, there's eBooks, there's, you know, animation there. We're not just talking about within the film industry. We're talking about any, anything that's appears in somebody's everyday life is what you're competing over, trying to get their attention from. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you really have to be remarkable. You have remarkable being something worth remarking on. And for the most part, there's a lot of stuff being created that's not remarkable that people are not going to remark on. Um, and that's just the nature of it. I don't think that this is something that only the Internet has spawned. We've we've seen huge record stores and huge bookstores that existed and people didn't listen to every record in them and didn't read every book in them. So some things will succeed and some things won't. But the the thing that the that creators really have to keep in mind is that you have to be remarkable, as in worth remarking on. And it's easier if you have a certain 
type of person that you can attract. Rather than I'm putting this broad story out there, it appeals to all different kinds of people. And it's it kind of dilutes because not all of those people are going to know about it. And it's going to be really hard to reach this broad sea of people to even let them know that this remarkable thing exists. So to, to have something in mind when you're making the story, when you're writing the story, when you're making the film, who, who are you trying to attract in a very, very minute detail, not I have a broad story. It'll appeal to a lot of people. Unless you have a lot, a lot, a lot of money and, and a team of, of marketers behind you, and even then it might not succeed, but it has a better chance. If you're devoting those kind of resources, then you can compete in something like that. But if you know you're not, then you can't make that story. That's not going to happen. That, that story is not going to reach the broad audience unless you have a huge amount of help behind you to help make that make sure that happens. So you have to make something remarkable and then you have to make it for a certain kind of person. Now, when that certain kind of person sees it and feels that their friend who is not necessarily into this kind of film would like it, their remark of to their friend saying, I, you should see this. I think you would like it. Even though it's not your normal thing, I think you would like it. That friend is more likely to see it than if you just put it out there on the, on iTunes and hoped for the best. You know, that that this core circle of people doesn't mean that that's all the audience that you're ever going to have. It just means that's the one, the first one you're going to start with. And once you saturate that one, you can move on to the next one or they will help you move on to the next one because they love so much what you've done that they want to share it with other people. And I've heard people say, oh, well, you don't want to sing to the choir. We don't want to be, you know, pegged into a certain kind of audience. No, you do. At the start, you absolutely do. Do not jump over and make the assumption, well, those people we have, because they're just as inundated with content as everybody else. So don't think that because you've made the story that you know they would like, that they're automatically going to find out about it. You have to go and do that cultivation. You have to reach them very first and get them on board to help you. Don't ignore them. Do, do be targeted, do be niche to start with and, and make sure that you, that they all know about it before you try to move wider. Cause if you jump on over them, you're just jumping into a sea with a whole bunch of other vague things happening and it's going to be really hard to attract people's attention. Yeah, definitely. It's almost this new, this new day and age. It's all about, uh, being a service to an audience base and no longer being sort of the, um, it's not all about you anymore. It's really you got to like let go and be a servant to whatever audience you decide that you want to focus on. And my feelings about film in general, to, for the most part, I feel like it's almost like an advertisement for something else. So you might spend all this time making it. You might be able to make some, you know, you know, make your money back or make some you know, some profit. But I think you even mentioned yourself that it's unrealistic for anybody who investing into independent film would see any type of return. It's, it's a different type of return. It's not going to be uh, financial and monetary. It's going to be something else. And with this sort of use of the film product as an advertisement for something larger, it's the larger aspect would be serving that audience and finding ways to monetize uh, a living, a sustainable living from that. So with that said, what do you, what would you like to see the future of filmmaking or independent filmmaking, uh, turn, you know, become? 
Hmm. Well, I think that that the future may not have to do with a feature film. It may not have to do with 90 minutes or two hours of your time sitting at one sitting and making that, you know, once a year or once every two or three years, that it may be the ongoing conversation and the ongoing content being made regularly, maybe even weekly. Um, I think it's going to be in the shorter content and I think that it's going to be uh, viewable on all kinds of screens and that's going to change the kind of stories that you're going to tell. It's going to change the form that it's going to take, whether it's going to be a web series or whether it's going to be a, an interactive experience, you know, whether you're going to make it on an Oculus Rift so that people are, you know, in the story when you're telling the story that a lot of technological innovations that I can't even foresee now are going to mess with that feature film um, form. I, I don't think that the future of film is in the long form feature. And I know that I'm going to, you know, piss off and go against a lot of people who are in filmmaking, but that, that really is the case is that feature films didn't start off being feature films. They were shorts and they were played on little machines in the back of department stores. And they slowly, you know, came out to where they were taking over the vaudeville stages and people were sitting for longer periods of time. They developed over time. Well, I think they're going to devolve back into that short form but they're not going to be in a you don't have to go to a certain place to watch it you have it in your in your hand whenever you want to watch it and that's really going to mess with the storyteller and things that have been taught to you in film schools or in books or whatever um, that you're going to have to start thinking about your stories in different ways um, I just came back from Universal Studios with my daughter had a chorus performance down there and you know, going through the Spider-Man experience and going through the um, Harry Potter experience where you're not only they're telling you a bit of a story, but you're you're actually feeling it. You feel like you're riding on the broom. You feel like you're riding in the car and going through the city. I wonder if that's going to be more um, common than it has been in the past where you're not going to an amusement park to have this. Will we have these virtual devices that anybody will have glasses, Google glass or whatever that you're actually literally walking through the story, almost like a video game. Um, and, uh, and that's how you will experience a story and it's not going to be a feature film. So those, because those technological developments help to form what the entertainment's going to be, I don't know what it's going to, to look like, but I don't think that it's going to be feature length, sit down in front of this device or in front of the television or go to a theater in order to see it kind of experience. I think that it's going to be more interactive and it's going to be more about different senses, not just your eyes and your brain. Um, and so we're all going to have to figure out, well, how do you make money from this? You know, how do you um, keep this sustainable? Where are we going to have the money to make this in the first place? Uh, technology tends to, to get cheaper as time goes on. Um, and so I think that at first it will be quite expensive and most um, lower filmmakers won't be able to utilize all the technology, but it will get cheaper and it will get more popular. And so people will jump into this. Um, but I think as far as business models go, it's going to have to be lots of different revenue streams from lots of different things. It's not just going to be the feature film. So 
investors or people like that are going to have to look at this whole, you know, merchandising and experiences and, um, and even, you know, partnerships with technology companies. And you're starting to see that already with, um, like Harmony Corinne has just been, um, hired by a brand in Europe to make a whole series of, um, little short films and things like that for their, their brand. Um, so that's money's going to go to, Harmony making another work, you know, that that's part of his sustainability of his career. That's not necessarily a feature film. Um, but if you were going to do like some of these um, music labels are doing where you're the 360 investor, uh, every piece of um, of work that a musician does, they cut a piece to their label. That might be, you know, the instead of the label being the investor, it could be private individuals being the investor, but they're making money from all different kinds of deals, not just from the one album or the one movie. Um, I think we may start to see more um, venture capital go into behind the artist, no matter what the artist is making. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't know if you saw that movie uh, with 30 Seconds to Mars, the Jared Leto documentary um, artifact where he talks about their, the litigation lawsuit that the record company put upon him for $30 million and breach of contract and whatnot. But it's a fascinating tale about how um, there's a short little video that they put together in the film of like how the music business works. And they did talk about that 360 deal in a sense of like, wait, 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 like everything I do, like they own, you know? So it's like this, it's weird, um, you know, weird vortex of like, you know, who owns who and what, what control as an artist do you have? So it's, um, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but it's, I'm going to try to get like a clip of it just to share on the social um, networks that we have, just because I thought it's, it, it encapsulates what's going on with the music industry and how difficult it is for artists and how do you break away as an independent. Um, I haven't seen the film. I, I mean, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen the film. But I've also seen, you know, lately that um, a lot of these digital distributors like VHX and people who were enabled filmmakers to to distribute films from their own website are suddenly enabling distributors to do the same thing. And they they tout it as we're going to make it easier for you to deal with the distributor and not have to carve out rights to sell from your own website because you can cut your distributor into a portion of those sales. And it started to feel a little bit like that 360 deal where you are the one who put the film together. You are the one who went out and found your fans. You're the one who builds the website and you're the one who runs the store. But the distributor wants a cut. <laughs> and they, what are, I'm, I'm confused. What exactly did they do outside of you're doing this to appease them so that they'll take your film out into other platforms? Are you really saying then that they don't feel they're going to make enough money in those other platforms so they want a cut of what you're doing as well, even though they didn't pay to have anything to do with the creation of the film? To me, that feels very... It feels easy for VHX to do, and I can see why distributors would love it, but I don't see why a filmmaker who's gone to all that length and investment of their time and resources and energy and money should cut somebody in for that. Um, and so I, that, that started to remind me a little bit of that 360. The, the, you've got to really watch the kind of deals that you're signing now with distributors who want to start taking pieces of your merch sales and, and your live event sales and your online um, sales from your website yep. because they're starting to feel that slip from DVDs not selling anymore. So their revenues are going down. So they need to find where else can we squeeze revenue from? And it's going to be you, the artist that they're squeezing it out of. Yeah. That's, it's, 
You know, I read a blog post. One of my first blog posts was uh, Hollywood is not in the film business. They're in the business of license exploitation. So when they build a a film, it used to be a loss leader going into theaters and they would make up all their the back end money through DVD or they're exploiting it to, you know, uh, um, toy uh, toy products or any type of merchandise, anything that they can sell the license off to. That's where they would be able to exploit it and make all their money. And I was, I was trying to figure out that the independent filmmaker could possibly do the same thing. And I think you did a you, I think you threw out like a blog post or just a comment that said, if there's no physical products, what does a distributor do? Or what's the new right. face of a distribution company? Right. Because previously they were just in the market for logistics. Like they would get your film into the stores, you know, the physical stores. If it was a DVD, they get your film into the theaters, which is a physical place, you know, that they're so they they would do some modicum of marketing depending on the film and how much belief they had for it to make money. Otherwise, you would just go into their catalog and they would press DVDs and they may or may not book it into a couple of theaters just to give it a, some kind of cursory release. But the rest of the time, it's just kind of sitting there. Um, so if they're not marketing it anymore, or they ha they they weren't marketing the majority of their catalog anyway, and we don't need them to get the film in, into stores as a DVD disc, what is the function? You know, uh, places like iTunes make it that you have to deal with an aggregator. You have to go through another entity in order to come to them. But there are lots of other places where you don't have to do that. So what's the point of having a distributor if, if you can physically get your product out there yourself? Right. So they need to be – they need to show their marketing prowess. They need to, to show, one, that a distributor has an audience for all of their work. And I can't name a distributor at the moment that has that. They have no audience for their films. They're, they're not known for a certain kind of movie where in the consumer's mind, they go, I want to see a certain kind of movie. I'm going to go to that distributor. I can't think of any distributor that a consumer knows off the top of their head that they would check out their films. But that's... Um, something I think that distributors need to, to be looking at rather than building an audience around one film, letting that fall to the ground and start over again on the next film. They need to be transitioning audiences just like filmmakers should be doing to build a body of audience around all of the films. And that helps to determine what kind of films they're going to pick up because they know the audience is in place and they know what that audience likes. It's much more effective. It's much more cost efficient. Um, it also helps the strategy, you know, of what, how, how do you acquire the films you acquire, not we'll acquire it and see what we can do with it and hope for the best. You know, that's, that's just very wasteful and there's no really need to do that anymore, but I don't see any distributors taking up that call. They all want to be broad. We have a big selection for all kinds of different people. And I'm like, yep, that's the most expensive way to market something is to try and get a broad audience interested in a, an array of different products. It's interesting. Um, I'd be remiss because I know that like uh, Jason Brubaker of filmmakingstuff.com had worked in the back end of the di direct di digital distribution with aggregators as well. And he would say that, you know, you would come to a, dis a dis distribution company and they would say, okay, so we're going to take this and we will uh, send it over to the aggregator, but, but we'll, we'll subtract that fee from your, you know, minimum guarantee if, if at all you got an advance. And then um, we also need to get your huge email list that you've you know built up. So it's like and, – and we're going to take whatever, 30 
And then you're thinking, and the thing about he mentioned is that to get into iTunes with an aggregate, aggregator, and I think you guys as Film Collaborative also work with it, uh, are also have a service for aggregation because you work with a particular company, that um, a lot of it is technical. Like in terms of iTunes has a very high standard or what they want to make sure that all films meet a specific technical um, requirements. Also, I think uh, they now require um, E&O insurance to be part of all the stuff they do. Um, but you, I think in your last podcast interview with Business of Film with Jesse, he was saying that there's no, there's a study that there's no loyalty to any distribution company like you're mentioning. There's like nobody cares whether or not it's a Warner Brothers film or, you know, or Paramount or Gravitas. They don't, you know, they don't, as a general viewer, if they just see it up in the front page of iTunes and they click it and it seems somewhat interesting, then that's what they're going to go with. They don't really care whether or not it was part of a, um, uh, you know, a small distribution company's lineup or not because they're not loyal to that. And um, with that said, too, the, the numbers of VOD should be eye-opening for filmmakers because, um I have an opportunity because my wife works with Rentrack, which does all the, 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 the numbers and stuff like that. So I don't get necessarily get proprietary information, but I could ask her general questions and she would tell me, you know, this particular film probably did this much in terms of electronic sell-through. And it was eye-opening because um, they're not huge numbers, you know, compared to what a film budget would be. For instance, I, I think uh, IndieWire just came out with one that said they gave like a uh, like a top 10 independent films and so you get an idea of what they're earning on iTunes and other electronic sell-through platforms and films with stars uh, films with distribution are making you know 50,000 maybe 100,000 some are up the, up towards like you know 300,000 but you think about like wait a minute how much was that production cost, you know, and how yeah. much is the film distributor, uh, you know, taking from it? So independent filmmakers need to know, like, the numbers, if you were thinking trying to make a million dollars on uh, VOD or electronic sell-through, are you trying to make multiple million dollars? Um, some of the top uh, Hollywood films like Thor and stuff like that only made maybe 60 million. You know, it's, that sounds a lot, but... It's not in compared to what DVDs used to be. And so and when you have an independent – and I saw the numbers for independent films that had no stars, no distribution um, um, backing, and that were just straight up just got through an aggregator, paid for a service, and then selling directly. It's the, 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 the returns are like 1000 to $5,000. Right. So – and I know looking at the, those films that they easily, easily had, you know – a hundred thousand or something put into it, you know? <laughs> and that was just in the making of the film. If they did any kind of marketing, which you're going to need to do something, uh, at least get a website or something, um, th then that's even more cost on top of it. Yes. The films that I've seen that have made uh, in the six figures on iTunes have spent nearly that much in the marketing costs just to drive people to iTunes. And then remember that iTunes takes 30% and then their digital distributor takes about 25 to 30%. And then any cost that the dis digital distributor put into it, take that out as well. And if they gave you a minimum advance, then they take that out as well. Usually you're not in any kind of revenue, and that's not, not profit, just revenue coming back from those sales for a year. 
after the film has been put up on iTunes. Um, so it, it, a lot of there's a lot of unrealistic expectation as far as revenue goes with independent filmmakers. Some of it is due to inexperience and some of it is due to purposely opaque numbers where things are being presented as if they're making a ton of money, but there's no actual number attached to it. So anybody knows what does that mean? A ton of money. Um, and I think that you're right, that a lot of people are going to be finding that that VOD, whether it's cable VOD or whether it's digital VOD, um, are not swimming in cash the way DVDs used to have them do it. But then if you have that kind of film that has names in it or has some high accolades, you're also probably going to get some kind of broadcast um, you know, licensing done, you're going to, um, you know, get a fairly big Netflix um, fee coming out of it. Uh, you probably aren't going to see a lot of revenue out of a theatrical, but you're going to need to have one in order for the the other uh, ancillary um, deals to happen because a lot of these people are depending on having a big marketing campaign that's usually gotten at the time when you're having a theatrical release to propel the title in a consumer's mind to want to look for it or recognize it when they see it on the digital outlets. Um, so a lot of this revenue that we've been used to seeing is going to be coming down. It's not going to be going up. It's not going to be getting higher. Uh, and I think that people need to be more aware of it. Hopefully, I do know that there are some organizations that are um, doing research and hoping to release more um, realistic numbers uh, especially from some of the, you know, recent uh, releases for films, so that you can make a business plan. You can know what, um, you know, kind of budgets you're going to need for this. Right now, it's it's almost impossible to do a really realistic business plan because nobody's really sure about revenue. Um, you know, if, outside of theatrical box office that's reported and DVD sales that are reported that are ever going down, um, nobody knows, you know, what do you get for a Netflix license? What do, uh, you know, what, what kind of revenues are you getting from one electronic sell-through, which is download to own. It's where people buy it and they're going to keep the digital copy or the streaming, which is, is just a rental, you know, that they're just paying $3.99 or whatever to watch the film once. And, and that's it. Um, we don't even know what's the difference between download to own and streaming, you know, how many people actually own the movies and how many people just stream them once. And that's it. And with DVD sales, obviously, they were owning the film and they could watch it as many times as they want. But we don't know a breakout between um, e EST and, and uh, streaming. Yeah, I've um, – like I said, the contracts that my uh, Rentrack has to deal with, my, that my wife has to deal with, is like they don't want to release that information. That's just they're not there yet. Uh, so – a company that wants to know their numbers will pay, um, you know, like a company like Rentrack to aggregate it, to do all the research and clean it up and submit it to them. But it's they, they're under contract where they can't release that information to anybody else. Um, so only those who request it and then make uh, the decision to release it to the public, um, that's on their own volition. But there is no sort of transparency yet in the digital uh, um, sales space just yet. And but the, what I've been able to see, it is like you said, it's 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 a lot less than people think, and like they really have to get their heads wrapped around, you know, realistic production costs in terms of the reality of like what film package they have. So with all that said, with all the future as we wrap this all up, um, is there? Uh, is there something on the horizon? Like, a, like I say, you're coming out with a new iteration of the book. Um, um, I don't know if you can. Are you? 
are you part of the the the, the Fandor the Ted Hope web series coming out at the end of the month? No. Oh, okay. Bummer. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, she's got much bigger voices, I'm sure, uh, you know, talking about, well, it's only six, I think there's only six interviews. So he, I'm sure he got some of the bigger names, bigger directors and bigger distributors and bigger financiers to talk, you know, about what they see as the future. Interesting. Because like, again, like I said, that's, he sort of, to me, represents sort of like that you know, the, um, that mid-level or that upper tier level of the independent film world, like I said, and there's so many filmmakers that represent sort of the, the backyard, you know, bootstrapping, you know, scrapping something together, um, that world. And then again, the, what seems like the Holy Grail is that 1% if you can get a, you know, part of the system, but being part of the system, you and I had a conversation about, the reality is, is that the economics work for filmmakers and film producers is all based off a of fee. So whether or not a film is successful or not, everybody works towards getting a fee. Like here's your director's fee for making this film. You know, my, and if you get to the upper echelons, it could be a lot of money, but it doesn't necessarily um, always get ownership or percentage or profit share of a particular film unless you're very, very like the elite 1% that can do that. And so trying to come up with new ways for the independent filmmaker or independent artist to make the sustainable living, um, you know, that's why I enjoy having conversations with you on your community and, and Google Plus about, you know, all these different ways other businesses are doing it, other online marketers are doing, other entities are doing it. Um, obviously, the um, the the book publishing, electronic uh, ebook publishing has had a head start over filmmakers and as well as the, the music industry. And now that filmmakers and production has come down so much that we are really alongside them as, as I guess the industry sort of changes or implodes or however you want to look at it. So with that said, is there any last bit of advice you can give to those sort of bootstrapping independent filmmakers to maybe keep an eye out or look to other industries to build a sustainable living? Well, you should always be keeping an eye out um, on lots of different industries and then thinking about how can you use what their lessons that they've learned or things that they've done that would help what you're trying to do. And like I talked about earlier, that's exactly how I started. And it's something that I still do. I subscribe to all kinds of different, you know, um, DigiDay and uh, stream, you know, uh, streaming online, which is, you know, really covering more of the streaming, um, video, uh, arena rather than the film arena, because I think that that's sort of the future of what, where this is going and listening to the multi-channel networks and what are they, who's getting together with that and how are they figuring out sponsorship and cross promotion and, um, you know, differentiating their revenue streams, not just from video, but they also sell physical products. They also sell trips, you know, they, um, they have vacations or live experiences where they have, you know, fan conventions and things like that, that are all different kinds of ways for them to make money besides what they're doing on their video um, output. But I think that uh, filmmakers need to be multi-talented, you know, that that there's no such thing, and there probably never was really for most people, but it's going to be less so in the future where you just get to make films and you get don't have to do anything else. 
Like that's <laughs> that I, I don't think that reality exists for most people, even people in the film industry. It doesn't really exist for that. They everybody has to do lots of different things. You have to be a writer and you have to be an editor and you have to be an artist and you, you know, have to know a little bit about graphic design and you have to know about business. Um that that you really should have a well-rounded education, not just go to film school and learn how to make films. You need to learn all kinds of different things that go into the film industry um, besides the technical knowledge of making films or storytelling. Uh, so it's, it would be good for you to take courses on marketing. It would be good to take courses on finance. It would be good to take courses on a graphic design, you know, all kinds of different things that you're going to creative writing, you know, and not just writing scripts, but how do you write to get people's attention in the audience space? Um, you're going to have to learn all kinds of different talents in order to do this work because you're not just going to have the luxury of being a director or just being a cinematographer. You're going to have to, um, especially if you're going to work on your own, you're going to have to know all kinds of different things in order to run a business for yourself. And so I think that's really what filmmakers should be concentrating on is not just figuring out how to make a movie, but how to reach an audience, how to uh, get lots of different kinds of work that hopefully feeds into the same passions that you have for making a film, but you're, you know, also pay the bills or pay the bills in between times and something that you enjoy doing, not something that you wish you didn't have to do. Um, that's really going to be sort of the key of to happiness for all artists is to do things that make you happy, even if it's not just one kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So as we wrap this up, um, First of all, it's just, it's been, I'm looking at, I can't believe it's an hour already, but uh, <laughs> it's, I love talking. I just love talking shop. So the, the last thing is, do you have any upcoming uh, talks or places you're going to be at that you want to share? And I guess as a two part question, like for me personally, just was curious of how you, um, how that started snowballing where you were able to start getting, uh, uh you know, part of being part of panels and, and speaking gigs. Uh, is this something you actively, uh, pursued or something that uh, people came to you after building an online presence? I, I don't really actively solicit most things, uh, most speaking engagements. It's mostly been from being out in the space and being one of the first, and this is sort of a first mover advantage kind of thing, being one of the first people out there talking about using social networking to build of an audience fan base. That wasn't something that most publicists speak about. It's not something that most distributors speak about. Uh, it's not something that sales agents speak about. And so when they have, you know, film festivals that have different panels, they want people to speak on them who uh, have something interesting to share um, and are, are covering something that is new and a voice they haven't heard. So I would say in the last year, I've been speaking less actually than I have in the last two years because this, the topic that I speak on has gotten more mainstream and more, um, more accepted. And so it's not as much included on the panel discussions as it used to be. In fact, you know, something like transmedia or um, video game design for film filmmakers, you know, is now more of a hot topic than it than it used to be. And so those people are more in demand than I am. But um, I am going to be at Sheffield Doc Fest, which is in Sheffield, England next month in June. 
Um, I've been there. This will be my third time uh, speaking as sort of a mentor and also in the meat market to meet with projects that are looking for either financing or distribution or thinking about their marketing earlier in the process. And then I've been invited to come and speak, give a masterclass at the Binger Film Lab in Amsterdam. They're doing a whole week on digital filmmaking which Ted will be uh, participating in as well, giving a keynote speech. And mine will be more about the DIY filmmaker, um, you know, all the all the marketing that should be done before your film premieres. Um, and so uh, I will, it's not just, you know, me talking theories, it's me saying, here's what you need to do. Here are the steps. Here are, here's how you put together a marketing plan. Here's how you start implementing it. So it's very much, you know, sort of a, a lecture write all this stuff down kind of class rather than having a moderator that asks me questions and I'm going to answer. So I hope that that's going to be informative to the people who come who are interested in figuring out how to develop an audience early in the process and how to keep them engaged until you have a release. Very cool. Very cool. Listen, thank you so much for your time. And I will um, follow up with you when I post this and then add all the other wonderful links. But um, within the podcast, I'll make sure that the intro and outro, I'll add uh, your website so people know where to get hold of you and uh, as well as a film collaborative. But um, anything else you want to say other than that? I, I can't I just can't thank you enough for your time. No, I think that we've covered most of it. Like I said, the second edition of the book will be coming out at the end of May. One of the things I'm going to do when I'm in Europe is unveil it because it's predominantly for looking at the European landscape. It can, it's for European filmmakers, but it can also apply to American filmmakers looking to distribute their films in Europe, uh, choices that they have in dealing with the different um, digital outlets that exist mainly in Europe. Um, and so, you know, I definitely want people to know it's, it's called selling your film outside the U S. Um, and, uh, I think it's going to be applicable to both U S filmmakers and also Europeans who are now starting to think more about reaching a global audience for their work. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, Sherry, thank you again for uh, hanging with me this morning. And, um, (laughs) one of these days we'll maybe meet up in person. So you're based in Los Angeles, right? I'm, I go back and forth between Los Angeles and Panama City Beach, Florida. So I'm at the moment I'm in Florida, but I plan to be back in LA next week. Oh, look at you! All sunny. I'm up here in the, the Pacific Northwest, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I was so, both both locations offer lots of sun and warmth, which is good. Very cool. All right, Sherry, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so Thanks. much, and I will follow up with you later. Okay, great. This All is right. fun. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.